Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We've had a bit of a laugh already about how we uh, choose to describe ourselves when it comes to our professionalisms. Alex, introduce our guest for us. Why have we been looking forward to this one so much? Well, we're always excited because I seem to start every episode with telling everyone how excited I am. But we're even more excited than usual today because this person, well, he's been around longer than you, Zach, as far as History Hack is concerned, because Mr. John Jordan was episode number two. Episode number two with his daughter, Emily, when he released his War Queens. Uh, And he's been back several times since. He's been a down the pub regular. We love him to pieces. He's currently in Georgia and he's back for more World War Two today. Uh, And we're actually going to talk about Grandad, but we're going to talk about Grandad. That's Churchill, if you're not a regular listener. And Eisenhower, which is going to be really cool. So I guess. Hello, John. Alex, Zach, how are you guys doing? Oh, we've missed you, buddy. Uh, I missed you think, too. I think the last time we were talking to you, everybody was fixated on the count in Georgia and whether or not it was going to tip the balance. And everybody was basically cursing Georgia and a few other states for not getting on with it sooner. Um, <laughs> so it's been a heck of a long time. It's good to it, see you. It, it was, it's great seeing you guys. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. I think we had uh, a riot at the Capitol. Uh, the Senate and all of Congress was up in the air, and uh, we were all in uh, COVID lockdown still. There was no vaccine, really. So, uh, yeah, those were, were crazy times uh, eight months ago. <laughs> so... Uh, it's been nuts, but I've missed you guys. Uh, I've been keeping up with History Hack and Down the Pub. You guys have had some awesome topics, and I look forward to the next one and the next time that I can get a shake loose from this uh, book research and uh, join you guys. Oh, well, more importantly, you went off and got married. I did. Right. I did. It was, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, uh, it's, it's been just happier than I could imagine. And uh, we'll be in uh, Paris next month for our honeymoon. So hopefully things will stay open. Uh, America won't uh, 
wreck itself with COVID uh, enough to keep us out of the country. So we'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed. Should mm-hmm. we start? Should we talk about these two? Eh, if we have to. Let's do it. Let's do it. Because oh, uh-huh. they're, they're so ignored and forgotten in history, aren't they? Right, Grandad, as we know, to Winston Churchill, uh, aristocratic, born to lead, has trundled all over the world, uh, getting involved with Britain's imperialist endeavours as a journalist, as a soldier, um, hugely privileged. How does that compa- compare to Dwight D. Eisenhower? Well, remember, uh, Winston Churchill, in the, even in the early 20th century, was one of the most famous men on the planet. He was a journalist. He was uh, writing like nobody's business and, and a very successful author. He was a celebrity. He was one of the early celebrity journalists, uh, having escaped from the Boers and written about that, uh, went into politics uh, he was just somebody front and center, and he had that uh, confidence of, uh, of an aristocratic and uh, politically active background and a, uh, a legacy in his family of leadership. Dwight Eisenhower came from a family of seven boys. Uh, they were middle class, uh, maybe on the poor to middle class side, and he grew up in Abilene, Kansas. Now, Abilene, Kansas, if you look at a map, is almost right in the center of the United States. Uh, And it's not just geographically in the center. It was a farming, uh, generally farming community. Uh, It was a place where he grew up uh, fighting with the neighborhood kids, playing baseball, football. Uh, His his background was team sports. Uh, He went to West Point because you could get a free education at the the formal name is the U.S. Military Academy, and he played football, but an injury sidelined him, literally put him on the sidelines, and he became a cheerleader and assistant coach, and then once he got out of West Point and started his military career, one of his side, uh, side gigs was uh, as a, an assistant football coach, and the reason that's important is because that football coaching mentality where you give the players the plays and you, you let them execute was something he carried with him into his military career. But he was one of the more obscure people uh, in, in, the, in public life. If you were not in the very small military of the 1920s and 1930s, you really didn't know who Eisenhower was. And until the time of Pearl Harbor, uh, he was just an, an obscure brigadier general, and he was felt very lucky to be a one-star, we call them brigadier generals, I think you'd call them brigadiers. Um, he, was just, he just felt lucky to be working, uh, working as a gen, at a general's level, but nobody had heard of him. So there's no sense that, because obviously, I'm spoiler alert, you know, if you don't know the story already, but Eisenhower goes on to become president. There's no sense that he's always gunning for the political career, you know, he, he's just a, a military man and, and then the war happens and things escalate from there. Is that fair? Well, Eisenhower is, yes, I, th- I think that's somewhat fair. Eisenhower always talked about his devotion to duty, how he didn't give a damn about his career and about politics. And many times he actually meant it. Remember, he was, he, he was in an era 
where you could become successful and famous for really doing your job very well. You didn't have to be famous for being famous. You didn't have to wear a meat dress or uh, <laughs> run around and break the internet with, uh, with butt shots like the Kardashians. <laughs> so, uh, so he was content. He wanted to lead in the field. And he at one point had begged George Patton for a regimental colonelcy in his tank force. But uh, when the army said, and, and General George C. Marshall told him that he was a, a brilliant staff officer and he was going to remain a staff officer for the rest of the war, he said, if that's what I've got to do, that's what I've got to do. And uh, so he didn't, he at least outwardly did not appear as a man who was gunning for a, a higher position. That said, his uh, brother was in politics. He, were, he was with the Department of Agriculture under the uh, Hoover administration. He, uh, he had enough sense of politics. And as the war went on and as he became more comfortable with the press and dealing with these high, per, uh, high personalities, uh, uh, his friends, uh, George Patton and some others, felt like he had the presidential bug at the end of the war. And uh, we can kind of go through his progression compared to uh, uh, Churchill's progression, because in some ways it, they traded places between 1941, when Pearl Harbor was attacked and America joined the war, to 1956, the time of the Suez Crisis, which was just after Churchill's second premiership, but kind of a continuation in some ways of that. Well, shall we stay with um, kind of Pearl Harbor and, and December 41? Because the point at which they meet is, I think I'm right in saying, just after Pearl Harbor, right? That's correct. Uh, five days after Pearl Harbor, uh, General George Marshall yanked Eisenhower from a, an outpost in San Antonio, Texas, and told him he wanted to uh, Ike to work in the War Plans Department, uh, the War Plans Division. As a, as a member of that division, he was he sat in on some of the Christmas 1941 discussions between Winston Churchill, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and the, uh, the high brass of both the British and American military establishments. Uh, they didn't really meet in those meetings at the time. And uh, Eisenhower's first actual face-to-face -face meeting with uh, Churchill, you know, who was several levels up above Eisenhower, if Churchill had been uh, a Britisher. Uh, was, but, but his first real meeting was in uh, December when he literally was holding maps open for uh, Churchill to take a look at the dispositions of troops in the Philippines. Uh, Churchill was making decisions with Roosevelt like, where do we send reinforcements? Should they go to Singapore? Should they go to the Philippines or somewhere else? And uh, literally Ike's job was just to bring maps. It, Eisenhower was, a, uh, was a, uh, an expert on the Philippines because he had served there with MacArthur. That's why he was called in. But that was really about the extent of their, their meeting in 1941. Their substantive meetings didn't start until the spring of 42. So, talked a bit about what, so their roles in the war, we've just talked about Dwight D. Eisenhower, obviously Churchill is Prime Minister. Um, how's Churchill interacted with the US so far? Churchill, by virtue of him being a head of government, 
Hmm. And by virtue of the British Empire having so many connections, so many military establishments throughout the world, and so much knowledge about how the world worked, was in the driver's seat uh, for the early part of the war. While the United States was sort of the sleeping giant that was just beginning to shake off its, uh, uh, you know, its uh, nighttime sleep aid uh, hangover, uh, Churchill was very active and he, he had very definite ideas for the way to approach Nazi Germany. And he was in the strategic driver's seat for the, the Allied decisions to invade North Africa, uh, then subsequently to follow on with an invasion of Sicily, to stay in the Mediterranean, to knock Italy out of the war, uh, to, stay, to commit more troops in the Mediterranean for the Anzio invasion to hopefully take Rome uh, and then get up into the, the Alps. So for the first part of the war, Churchill was running through influence, through force of will, through the resources of the British Empire, a lot of the strategic uh, agenda. Eisenhower, by contrast, during that time, was a uh, planner, a theater commander. He took the decisions that Churchill and others made, the, the combined chiefs of staff particularly, that's to whom he reported, and uh, put those into execution. And so while Eisenhower was the one to say, let's go in North Africa, in Sicily, at Salerno, and then at uh, Normandy, it was Churchill, Roosevelt, and the combined chiefs who dictated where Eisenhower would go. Uh, so he was more of an executor at that time. Uh, but, but, he, but Eisenhower, of course, matured over the course of those mm -hmm. several amphibious invasions, and he became more confident, not only dealing with the press, but also dealing with these larger-than-life personalities that he had to stand up to at times, uh, including Churchill. Is there a sense that, you know, the two of them butt heads over things at uh, various points in time? You know, Churchill wants a particular thing done a particular way, uh, and Eisenhower has to turn around and go, mm, but I'm the one on the ground and I say no. That happened a number of times. Now, Eisenhower had the luxury of retreating into the mantra of these are military questions. I'm only going to deal with military questions. Politics is for somebody else. Uh, his orders in 1944 were to, uh, uh, to establish a lodgment in, in Normandy, France, and to, or on, on, in, on the continent, and to undertake operations for the destruction of Germany and her armed forces. And as he saw it, his, his decisions would be dictated on that basis. So there were a number of places where they, they actually disagreed. Uh, a good example is the so-called transportation plan. This was right before the Normandy invasion. The planners at Ike's staff, Ike was his nickname, everybody called him that. Uh, the, plan the planners of General Eisenhower's staff took it as an article of faith that if they could keep the Nazis from moving 13 first-line divisions up to the beachhead by the third day of the invasion, they would win the battle of the buildup. They could get enough troops on to where they could not be pushed off the continent. So the trick was, how do we keep those panzers and, and, uh, and foot soldiers from making it to the beaches. And one of the ideas that Eisenhower was a proponent of 
was called the transportation plan, which was to bomb the hell out of the French rail networks, the uh, railway uh, marshalling yards, the bridges, the roads, and uh, prevent the enemy from making reinforcements. The problem was there were estimates of the French casualties that could run as high as 40,000 dead, 120,000 injured by this use of strategic bombers. Now for Churchill, that was a massive political decision. Uh, it was a question of what would the relationship between Great Britain and France be like after the war? Churchill was already unpopular in many ways with the French because he had ordered his fleet to fire on the French fleet. Uh, there's the, the usual Anglo-French, you know, kind of unsteady relationship at times. And Churchill was worried that the French would hate the allies, not understand what they were doing. They would just see bombs falling out of the air and not right on the, uh, during the time of an invasion, but a few weeks before. So he was opposed to the idea of this bombing effort. Eisenhower said, as a military matter, I have to insist on it because if you take this away from me, I'm gonna, that will reduce the chances that the invasion will succeed. And in the end, uh, Churchill gave way. And uh, they, they had that back and forth over politics versus military considerations a number of times. Uh, Eisenhower wanted to pull back in late 1944 from around Strasbourg in France uh, because there was a, 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 a there was a counterattack. His lines were vulnerable militarily. That's what you should do. But Churchill and de Gaulle did not want the Allies having taken Strasbourg and ejected the Nazis. Everybody's waving British, American, and French flags. The Germans are, you know, they're throwing tomatoes at the Germans as they leave. They don't want to pull back and have the Germans come in and start machine gunning everybody. So that was another case where they, they disagreed. So there were a lot of, of times when politics would intrude on military questions, and Eisenhower and Churchill just had to thrash those out as best they could. And we're talking about the big one now. So Eisenhower is supreme commander of the Allied invasion of Europe. Everything hinges on this. So what now, now that he is at the same level as Churchill, how has their relationship changed? Well, when Eisenhower becomes supreme commander, he's at the, he, he's at the top of the heap in Europe. Technically, he reports to General Marshall on one hand as the head of the U.S. Army, Army Chief of Staff, but he also, as Supreme Commander, reports to the Combined Chiefs of Staff, which were the British Chiefs of Staff and the American Chiefs, and those two reported to Churchill and Roosevelt. So on one hand, Eisenhower was still below Churchill, but on the other hand, he had by, late, by early 1945 the clout to be able to make decisions that, uh, and if they were military, if there was anything military about them, uh, the the, the uh, Joint Chiefs of um, the United States Joint Chiefs and then the British Joint Chiefs often went along with it. They would back him up and he could overrule Churchill. Um, a great example is the decision to uh, forego an attack on Berlin. Churchill looked at it from a political standpoint. He was a, he had a military, of course, Churchill had fought at Andaman and in the Northwest frontier in India, but Churchill was a political creature fundamentally, and he saw the post-war 
uh, situation of uh, America and Britain being uh, driven in some part by their ability to take Berlin and have a greater voice at the peace table against the Soviet Union and Joseph Stalin. On the other hand, Eisenhower saw Berlin as a militarily insignificant target. His, remember, his orders were to undertake operations to destroy the German forces, not to take particular cities. And so in kind of a Napoleonic sort of attack the armies first, attack Vienna second approach, he said, we shouldn't go into Berlin. And this was a big fight, but ultimately the uh, combined chiefs agreed with, with Eisenhower and they said as a military decision, that's, that's the correct one. And, and Eisenhower ultimately said, these are my orders. If you wanna change my orders and tell me to take Berlin, I'll do it. But it's probably gonna cost about 90,000 casualties and that's a pretty stiff price to play, pay for a prestige target. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. So after the war, Eisenhower, does he trust the Soviets? I mean, I mean, Churchill really doesn't trust the Soviets, right? And this is an extension of a much longer running question in, in British foreign policy that goes back to pre-World War II, where in many respects... Actually, the, the fear was more of Soviet Russia initially than it was of the embryonic Nazi German state. And it was only in time and with Hitler's kind of foreign policy that Nazi Germany emerges as a primary threat. And then the, the allegiance that emerges is kind of that convenience of my enemy's enemy is my friend in terms of the, the alliance between um, Britain, the USA and Soviet Russia. So... Churchill kind of, in my head at least, always kind of reverts back to that it's communism, it's dangerous mentality. Does Eisenhower have the same kind of stance? At first, Eisenhower took a very different approach. Again, Ike was looking at it from a military standpoint, and he believed that uh, if the two nations, if the, the Western allies and the, and the Soviet Union agreed to stop the forces at the Elba River, then that's where they would stop them. And he and Eisenhower actually wrote directly to Joseph Stalin, who was the head of the uh, who was the head of the, the Soviet Union and or the, the Red Army, technically, Generalissimo. And uh, he was willing to correspond with Stalin to coordinate where the forces would start stop. Uh, Churchill was furious at that. He, he thought that was meddling in politics and, and Eisenhower felt not. Uh, after the war, uh, Stalin hosted Eisenhower in Moscow. St uh, uh, Eisenhower literally stood atop Lenin's tomb with a group of people, including Stalin. He was toasted by Stalin. Stalin gave him a, a medal and uh, the two of them and, and, and uh, Georgi Zhukov, uh, the head of the Red Army, got along very well. Uh, and that, but that was 19, 
1945, things, of course, changed. Churchill reverted back to his, uh, you know, Iron Curtain view. Uh, he had, uh, in 1946, he made the famous Iron Curtain speech. And, uh, and so that was uh, something that they, uh, you know, differed on at that time. And in time, Eisenhower's view would change. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One thing they did agree on, though, John, is Anglo-American friendship. Yes, both of them were passionate about the idea that the Americans and the uh, British had this, uh, this natural connection through language, through shared history, and they could really help each other. And they could help the cause of liberal democracy throughout the second half of the 20th century. Uh, at the very end of the war, uh, Eisenhower made sort of a, a benediction uh, speech at uh, London's Guildhall, where he talked about the, the need for Anglo-American friendship. Eisenhower uh, helped sponsor uh, scholarships for students uh, between American and Britain to uh, visit each other. And uh, he was extremely passionate about that at the, at the war's end. Churchill, of course, had been a proponent of that for a long time and had uh, privately talked about, uh, even well before he wrote his history of the English-speaking peoples, he privately discussed uh, how the Americans and the, uh, the British, if they stuck together, could uh, do a lot of good in the world. And in fact, as, as we'll see, one of his last uh, uh, pieces of advice to Anthony Eden before uh, Churchill ended his second premiership was, never be separated from the Americans. So, I mean, this obviously ends up being kind of integral to that perception of the special relationship, doesn't it? And obviously, more recently, we've kind of come to call that into question and ask, you know, is there a special relationship today? Um, but going back to that immediate aftermath of the Second World War, I think it's probably fairer to say that there was at least a degree of special relationship i mean what's the american perception here is is there a sense that you know yes you've got the british empire but you know they had to the, the british had to be bailed out by the americans financially as well as militarily in the second world war is there that sense that you know britain's useful but you don't want to prop them up too much 
At the beginning, the, uh, we were kind of the way we were during the war. Uh, the United States view was that the uh, British Empire, which remember still had India, Kenya, Singapore, Hong Kong, all those places, uh, the British Empire was still extremely powerful and the United States was still very reluctant to get engaged in uh, wars and, uh, and, and really get too far into other people's business. We did not want to continue uh, a presence in Europe any longer than necessary. We wanted to get out of Japan as quickly as possible. And President Harry Truman, who succeeded Franklin Roosevelt, carried through that policy. And uh, he was, well, he was a very different person, didn't have the wartime experience with Churchill that Roosevelt had. Uh, there, was, it, there was a very close relationship and the United States, I think just viewed uh, the uh, Anglo-American, or the British Empire rather, as having a temporary setback, uh, they'll get past it and then life will, will go on as, as normal. Um, a few things changed that. First was the Korean War. The United States uh, thought that we could get out of uh, a big military commitment. And then uh, we had to get back into it with Korea. We were up to spending 15% of our gross domestic product on military uh, spending compared to, I think it's three and a half percent today. Uh, so we, we, we sort of got drawn into being an international power more than we expected, not just little outposts like Guam or Wake Island, but big places like Korea. Um, the other thing that happened was uh, during the early 1950s, the threat of communism became a dominant force. And, and honestly, in some ways, it's, it's, a, it's a force of Churchill's making because that Iron Curtain speech that he gave in Fulton, Missouri in 1946 had a huge impact on the United States. So we saw uh, the Soviets back a war in North Korea. We saw China fall to, the, uh, to Mao's communists. We were seeing the, these, these ghosts everywhere. We were terrified of what Stalin might do. And so as the 1950s dawned, uh, we had a lot of, of very, uh, very uh, vociferous anti-communist voices in the United States that began to supplant our, our, our friendship with, with Britain would always be there, but the importance of that friendship began to take second place to the need to fight communism. And with the British Empire, its colonial history was always kind of um, some baggage that it had to carry when we were trying to you know, win third world approval uh, of, of us versus the, the Soviet Union. 1951, Churchill comes back into power. Uh, so I get this, it sounds very much like it was in the Second World War at first with him having a much more broad portfolio in his role than Eisenhower has. What, what changes and how does the dynamic change when Eisenhower starts looking at the presidency? Sure. Well, when Churchill uh, became premier in 1951, uh, Eisenhower became NATO's first supreme commander. So once again, Eisenhower is limited to military issues. In this case, it's just instead of an attack, which it was in the Second World War, it was defense, defense of Western Europe. Uh, so again, like, like you say, Churchill had a broader portfolio. Um, 
Eisenhower in 1951 to 52, particularly early 52, began thinking of running for president. Now, it was a little bit odd because he was apolitical in terms of parties up to that point. Uh, Harry Truman said that he could virtually guarantee Eisenhower the Democratic nomination for president if Ike wanted it. And Eisenhower thought he had a lot uh, thought about it, but most of his his friends and his thinking uh, ran to uh, fiscal conservatism. Uh, we need a small a small budget. We need a small smaller military. Uh, he ran to they ran to an anti-communist uh, feeling, a belief eventually that a combination of covert action in the third world and the threat of massive nuclear retaliation would be the, the right way to approach the Soviet Union. Uh, and so his thinking began making him more of a Republican for the mid 20th century. Uh, he was also influenced by other men such as John Foster Dulles who had worked for Truman but also became an anti-communist advocate. And uh, so their thought process, Ike's thought process ran more to anti-communism, whereas uh, by the time Eisenhower became president, an event happened in the Soviet Union that made Churchill take a, a very strong leftward turn to be more uh, uh, peaceful toward the Soviet Union. And for our listeners, what was that event? Uh, the event was in March 1953. Uh, it was the death of uh, death of Joseph Stalin. Um, it was uh, portrayed humorously in a, in a brilliant movie called <laughs> The Death of Stalin. Uh, yeah. But uh, and, and that movie shows a lot of uncertainty within the, the leaders of the Kremlin as to who would succeed Stalin and uh, whether there would be changes in policies. Uh, there was an enormous amount of uncertainty in London and Washington about that as well. But Churchill, who had a number of big three conferences with, well, two big three conferences and a number of conferences with Stalin, many conferences with Roosevelt, was a proponent of personal, uh, personal communications. And he always felt that if he could get Stalin in a room where Stalin and Eisenhower in a room together. And then after that, uh, if he could get Malenkov or Bulganin or Khrushchev into a room together with the Americans, they could sort out things the way they did during the Second World War. So, uh, so, so Churchill began, became basically an advocate for peace. He was the guy who wanted to strangle Bolshevism in its cradle in the early 20th century. He mm -hmm. advocated sending British and American troops over to, uh, uh, to uh, 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 Murmansk to invade, in to help the white army. Uh, he had been the anti-communist and, and famously when, uh, when Britain and uh, the Soviet Union joined forces in 1941, he said, I'm never gonna take back anything bad I've said about communism, but Zach, as you said, the enemy of my enemy. Well, now Churchill is thinking this is a time when with the threat of nuclear weapons now, we've got hydrogen bombs that are that are a hundred times more powerful than the atomic bombs. We got this threat of world destruction. Maybe we can open a peace feeler with the Kremlin because Stalin's out of the way and the ogre is dead. Let's see if we can turn over a new page with uh, the Soviet Union. This is obviously a challenge for the two of them. What does their relationship look like at the end of Churchill's second term? 
By the end of the second premiership, uh, Eisenhower was confident enough to know that the United States was in the driver's seat. Um, at first, the at first Ike was kind of willing to go along with a lot of what Churchill was talking about, except for a big three meeting with the Soviet Union, uh, Britain, and the United States. He refused to do that because he thought. And he put it, it, the way he put it was, this is the same old prostitute, just a different dress. And he actually said it in those kind of words, and it kind of sort of embarrassed everybody, um, the way he put it. But he was extremely suspicious and, and basically said, until the Soviets show us that they will do something different, Churchill, I'm not going to go along with you. Now, the two of them worked together in a lot of places. Uh, both uh, Churchill and MI6 and the U.S. and the CIA worked together to overthrow the Iranian uh, prime minister uh, because that was a threat to our oil. Uh, the way the British sold it to the United States was this is a possible uh, opening for the Soviet Union in the Middle East and we can't have that. And so we, were, we reflexively said we're willing to go along. Uh, the U.S. kind of bypassed the uh, British in Guatemala, we, we engineered a coup there uh, that was on the border of, of Belize and, and British Honduras, uh, but we got along that well there. We began having disputes in 1953 and 54 over a few things. Uh, the British needed help in the Suez Canal. They had 80,000 troops there. Those troops were being sniped at. Uh, they needed some, some way to guarantee the safety of the canal, which they viewed as their oil pipeline. Uh, and the United States didn't want to help them. Uh, conversely, the United States felt like we should be doing more in Vietnam to stop the communists. We need to prop up the French. Uh, Eisenhower kept trying to get uh, uh, Anthony Eden and Winston Churchill to send troops in the and, and made, they made these comparisons to 1940 and we didn't help the French and, and, uh, and Churchill wasn't gonna go along with that either. Uh, they both had to worry about what are we gonna do with nuclear weapons? Uh, the British were building more of their own, but they were stationing American strategic bombers in England and that put Britain in the target hairs of any Kremlin nuclear attack. So their, their views began, Eisenhower's and Churchill's views began to diverge. And in particular over uh, where the rubber hit the road was the Suez Canal on one hand and then Vietnam on the other hand. Eventually, Churchill goes, doesn't he? I mean, Eden's the guy who, who really bears the brunt of the responsibility for what then becomes the Suez Crisis in, in 1956. Churchill, he's, he's almost clung to office despite some pretty ill health. I think he has at least one, possibly two strokes in his later years. There is that sense that he should have gone much earlier, but kind of clings in. So when he does step down, how does that affect the US-British relationship? And I suppose tied up within that is, you know, the Suez crisis. Absolutely. Um, Churchill and, and Eisenhower had come full circle from 1941 when Eisenhower was the junior brigadier and, uh, and, and America was the junior partner in the Atlantic Alliance to 1956. Uh, 55 is when Churchill left. Uh, when when uh, Eisenhower was the president, America was, the, was generally considered to be the more dominant of the two partners at the time. Um, when Churchill left, he kept he, he, he 
basically had Anthony Eden uh, take over. Eden had been waiting in the wings for years. He was like the Prince Charles of the premiership. <laughs> and uh, so, so frustrated that Churchill would just not let go. But he finally let go. And, uh, and, and the, uh, there were a couple things. From a personality standpoint, uh, John Foster Dulles and Anthony Eden were counterparts, and they did not get along with each other. Uh, issues of Korea, Vietnam, the Suez, and other places just made them, them absolutely incompatible. Um, uh, Dulles, for instance, would refer to Eden as Antony, and he would ask him, so have they made you prime minister yet, back during those later years when Churchill was clinging to power. <laughs> um, they also viewed the British as being fixated on colonial, holding on to colonial power, at the expense of their relationships with the third world and giving the, the Soviet Union an entree. So uh, when Churchill left, uh, uh, some of the personality was gone, although Eisenhower had um, managed to, uh, uh, to sort of divorce personality from policy. He, he could be very cold-blooded and analytical when he wanted to. And there were a lot of his personal associates who he, he jettisoned pretty quickly after they were no longer useful to them, to him. Um, Churchill was not like that. Uh, Eisenhower told his son that of the many people Eisenhower had met, Winston Churchill came closest to fulfilling the requirements of greatness of any person he'd ever met. But that didn't mean he was going to go along with what, what Churchill wanted. So in the end, uh, there uh, uh, you know, the, the Suez crisis was kind of a continuation of that divergence of policy that the two men presided over. And ultimately, by uh, not being close enough to the Americans, Eden uh, stepped in a big political, stinky, steamy mess. You just don't get statesmen like this anymore, do you? You get Boris Johnson and Trump. You know, it, it, it's... The, the, the politics, you know, because of communications, um, things have become more personalized than they used mm. to be. Eisenhower famously refused to deal with personalities. He thought these are issues. Maybe somebody is distasteful to me personally, but I'm going to look at it the same way a bridge player looks at a set of cards. And, and Eisenhower was a very good bridge player. And that's that's how he looked at things. Um, it is different today, but but remember, there was there was a lot of bitterness at different times. Yeah. Uh, and, and from a historical standpoint, there's probably a lot there that we don't know about because it wasn't all recorded like it is today. Yeah, absolutely. Did their friendship survive the Suez crisis? It did. It did. Uh, the two men, uh, first of all, uh, Churchill, although he was very much in favor of going into the Suez at first, he, uh, he did blame Eden. There was kind of a pile on with, with Churchill, Macmillan, uh, Rab Butler and others basically saying this is all Eden's fault. He, he mishandled it. Um, but, but the two men still corresponded. In 1959, uh, Churchill visited the United States for, I believe it was his last visit uh, to, uh, to Eisenhower, at least. They went and saw some of their old friends. Uh, I think Dulles was in the hospital. Uh, with cancer, dying of cancer. Marshall was in the hospital, dying of strokes. And so they, they both got together. Churchill was very old and feeble, but, uh, but, but they still liked each other personally. And when uh, Churchill died, 
Eisenhower was designated by President John F. Kennedy to be the American representative to his funeral and give the uh, American uh, eulogy for uh, Sir Winston. You know, it's really just a, a case of these two partners, and they were partners, they were friends as well, but friendship has its limits. The two partners came full circle from 1941 to 1955, but they are two of perhaps the four or five people around which the mid-20th century pivoted. Mm. Uh, in Eisenhower's case, it was a lurch toward anti-communism, a sense that America could use its nuclear might to dictate a lot of the agenda internationally, not just with its local uh, parochial concerns. With Churchill, of course, it was uh, the 1940s opposition to Nazism all the way through his uh, very far-sighted ideas that perhaps peace and disarmament is the legacy that we ought to be shooting for. Uh, and it was, it was a wonderful friendship. You've done a book on this, haven't you? I'm working on it now. Uh, I've written about uh, both of these guys extensively, and uh, but now I'm researching one that just focuses on the relationship and many of the things we talked about. It's, it's a fascinating era, and you don't hear much about the 1950s, um, you know, things like Iran and the Suez, but uh, there's a lot of high drama there that um, I think yeah. we'll see is uh, more significant than we sometimes think. There's an episode of The Crown that deals with Suez before The Crown got ridiculous and insulting. Um, mm -hmm. Series two. And uh, it's actually really good. It, it is. Uh, it shows Anthony Eden as being the guy who wanted to step out from Churchill's shadow. He wanted to reclaim some of the greatness of the empire. And at first I thought that's just, you know, Hollywood made up stuff mm. uh, to some extent or overblown. But when you look at his uh, at the memoirs of, of men like um, uh, 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 Nutting and Macmillan and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, when you look at those guys, and then you look at what uh, like Churchill talking to Lord Moran about his personal thoughts. You do see that a lot of it was personality driven with Eden. And, you know, to some of it is, to some extent, is health issues, is, yeah. uh, you know, drug I think Jeremy Norton did a really good job at playing Eden, actually, because he was kind mm -hmm. of, kind of pathetic, pathetic in a way that, like, unfortunately kind of was, wasn't it? He waited all that time and then, meh. He, he did. Um, five years before the Suez crisis, uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway had come out with a book called The Old Man and the Sea. And it's basically about this down on his luck uh, Cuban fisherman who is, hasn't had a bite in 84 days and he's desperate to, to get a, land a really big fish. And in the course of landing this really giant marlin, he uh, basically becomes a broken man. It's too big for him to haul on board the ship and uh, it kind of is a broken dream. And in some ways, five years later, that's what happened to uh, Eden in the Suez. Yeah, it was. It was a, a very... And this isn't a technical term, but it was a piss poor way to end what should have been um, a, a promising career. Uh, certainly Eden as foreign secretary for a long time was, you know, a, a powerful, striking individual. Um, and then to, to throw it all away on the Suez crisis was quite a damp squib. Um, and if folks are interested in knowing more about the Suez crisis, we recorded with Adrian Smith a few weeks back. So there's a whole episode that they can enjoy on that. John, thank you so much for this. It's well, been great to me. see you again. Um, let us know when the dogs, book... workmen, 
doorbell ringers, <laughs> everything in the course of this recording as well. See, this this shows you why we've got so much COVID over here. It's because we're back to normal. <laughs> Literally everyone has turned up at your house in just this one hour. They have, and, and I'm not even <laughs> offering free booze. Yeah. <laughs> Yet. Yeah. You're saving that for when I get there, right? Absolutely. That and uh, getting out the Lewis gun, which I am going to get the barrel fixed on. So we'll go blast away with a bunch of World War One stuff. Nikolai will cry if he finds out about that. Let him weep. <laughs> and on that <laughs> on note, that note. <laughs> brilliant when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts so to this end we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests latest and greatest books you can support them and you can support history hack too 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.